The Duke of Edinburgh has announced his retirement. We look back at his military career. So it's quite interesting to hear these things whistling over and landing in the water with a red splash beside you. You suddenly realise that life was for real. France goes to the polls, but will the outcome change defence and security in Europe? And doctors at war, life and death at Camp Bastion Field Hospital. The Duke of Edinburgh will step down from official duties later this year. Buckingham Palace made the announcement this morning. The 95-year-old will no longer carry out public engagements from the autumn. The Duke has strong military ties. He's Lord High Admiral, but also Colonel-in-Chief of several army regiments. He also had his own military career, serving with the Royal Navy in the Second World War, going to sea as a midshipman aged 18. He saw action in the Mediterranean. In 1995... He shared his memories of that time with BFBS. The Italians had the effrontery to shoot back. So it's quite interesting to hear these things whistling over and landing in the water with a great splash beside you. You suddenly realise that life was for real. It wasn't a question of fright. It was just, you know, amazement that anything like this could actually happen. I got an indication what direction to, to point the, the searchlights. And they said, well, illuminate. So I switched the things on. But I especially <laughs> a good chance I actually found a cruiser. Somebody said train right or something because... And there was another cruiser. And, so, and with that, everybody started shooting. Whereupon they didn't really need much illumination after that. Well, I'm joined by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, quite a character, Christopher, and brought quite a bit to the military. Yes, he did. I mean, that thing about the um, when he was in the Mediterranean, for example, in Battle of Crete, um, he wasn't allowed to actually take part in any of the war until Germany declared war on Greece because he was a Greek. He was Prince Philip uh, of Greece at the time. And he used to, and then as he ever got to praying in that sort of way, he used to say, well, I, I do hope they, they start shooting at the Ath- uh, Athens or something like that, then I can get on with the war, which is exactly what he did. Um, but then to Dartmouth as as Prince uh, as Prince Philip of Greece, Lieutenant Prince Philip of Greece, which of course is where he met Princess Elizabeth, brought down to Dartmouth by his uncle, who was Mountbatten, who was the ADC to the king. And Dartmouth had mumps at the time. So uh, Mountbatten said, you will entertain the princess. Hmm. And when she leaves, you will get in your rowing boat, because they're in a yacht, and you will row. You will row, and his words were, you will row like stink, <laughs> so that she can wave. And the idea was that she would fall in love with him, and that's how it happened. He said it was one of the biggest uh, battles that he ever that he ever uh, played in. So he will be retiring from public life in the autumn, but he does reserve the right to, to still make some appearances when he wants to. Do you think they will be... You don't think so? Is, it's he, not... Reti- I tell you what, this retirement thing, what he's doing is actually stepping out of uh, the public. public the public engagements. But in terms he of the military... He is not retiring. I mean, I have these great conversations uh, at, at Trinity House with him, and he always starts them off as saying, what's keeping you busy at the moment? Mm. And he then tells you what's keeping him busy. Now, these things that are keeping him busy are nothing to do with public engagement. Do you think he will still go and see military units? He will go and see military units. He's got a special fondness for the Grenadiers, one Grenadiers, uh, the Nijmegen Company especially. Um, 
he will get involved with things that are close to his heart, like Trinity House and the maintenance of uh, Boyd systems, etc. But he'll, he'll keep tag of the stuff that he finds and has always found important. I mean, for example, he's handed over the, uh, the uh, award scheme uh, to Prince Edward some years ago, but he still keeps on tag of it. And when they have receptions, he goes up to people and he says to them right close to their sort of lapels, and what's keeping you busy at the moment? And he wants to know, and of course he already does know, because he's a great briefer. I'm fascinated to know what you answer when he asks you that, Christopher. I once, he once asked me what colours, it was the Royal Yacht Squadron ball, and he said to me, you've got red socks on. <laughs> and from ever since, I've worn red socks. Well, there you have it. Now, could defence agreements between Britain and France be affected by the outcome of the French presidential election? France will go to the polls on Sunday to decide whether centrist Emmanuel Macron or right-wing Marine Le Pen will lead the country. Will both say they will increase defence spending? Let's talk to Dr Paul Smith, an expert in French politics from the University of Nottingham. Good to speak to you today, Dr Smith. So where do the candidates stand on defence? Well, they stand in some ways quite close to one another and in other ways quite a long way apart. You talked about uh, increasing the, the defence budget. And of course, what is interesting is that both, you know, compared to 2012 and 2007, when candidates were talking about the peace dividend and defence cuts, uh, both uh, candidates are talking about increasing the, the defence budget, uh, largely, though not exclusively, because of the threat uh, from uh, ISIS, but also uh, security issues in Europe. Where they really very profoundly differ is that Le Pen, Madame Le Pen, is much more interested in cultivating a very close relationship with Vladimir Putin, uh, whereas uh, Emmanuel Macron is much more of an Atlanticist uh, and certainly much more focused on uh, NATO, but also the uh, the European uh, defence uh, setup. Mm. Uh, and in terms of NATO, uh, Marine Le Pen has said that the reason for NATO no longer exists, uh, and she would withdraw France from NATO's integrated military command. What would that mean exactly? Well, it, it's pretty much what it says on the tin. I mean, she, she'd be going back to one of the things that she's tried to appropriate during the campaign is uh, a lot of Gaullist rhetoric. And one of the things, one of the reasons that de Gaulle pulled France out of the integrated command in 1966 was because he felt that NATO was not serving France's interests or the best of France's interests. He stayed in NATO, but not the integrated command. And I think she's kind of reprising that. She's basically, you know, saying that there are, in the future, France's interests will not be or do not stand with uh, fully with NATO but also with opening up a relationship with uh, with Russia and in that way she kind of is echoing not I think I don't think she's making it up I mean I think she's genuine in this belief but that that France's interests will be better served in the close relationship with with Moscow. Mm. Christopher Lee just reminders of Britain's military ties with France. Most of them you'll find in uh, agreements that were made rather than, say, the NATO. If you go to NATO, there is something which everybody's equal. Everybody has the same sort of agreement with, and it, it, it concerns me membership. What does that mean? If one country is attacked, would you indeed actually go uh, to war to help it? Uh, and then it's complicated by the procedures you have in your own individual parliaments so how, how you would go about that, and, you, and that's a difficult thing to ratify in the mind. Where uh, where France works very well with NATO, and it was some of the things that were discussed quite heavily back in the days of Tony Blair, 
for example, is that if, if France, as they have in, in history in Africa, mm. if France has got conditions in Africa and needs help, almost certainly it's the British that will actually help. Could be the RAF actually flying equipment in or being on standby, etc. And it is that arrangement which is in, in fact particularly important. In that light, at Paul Smith, do you think it, should it be Macron, as he is the favourite? Let's talk about that as a possibility. Um, he's going to focus much more on Africa, isn't he? Do you think that means that Britain will be involved more? Uh, I don't know if Britain will be involved more. I can sp speak about the French situation. Certainly Macron is very keen to, and he stressed throughout the campaign, that uh, it's very important for, for France and for Europe to, to strengthen their southern frontiers, as it were, by which he means Africa, of course, and uh, and he's been very positive about the things that France has done in places like Central Africa and in, and, and in, and in Mali in particular. And what's also important to, to bear in mind is that one of the ministers who came out in support of Macron very early on, not just politically important, but strategically important, was is the defence minister, Le, Minister Le Drian. And I think that he will have a role to play uh, going forward. He may even be retained as defence minister. We'll have to have to wait and see. But I think that there's a certain degree of continuity that is embodied in Macron if he's elected, and I fully expect him to be elected uh, on Sunday. And in that light, what about intelligence sharing? Uh, well, again, I would expect that to uh, to carry on in, in, in much the same way. Uh, I mean, you know, the struggle against terrorism, for example, is shared by, by both France and Britain. And um, again, in the debate last night between the presidential candidates, Macron was very keen to, you know, in setting himself apart from from Le Pen to stress the importance of international collaboration at all kinds of levels uh, and particularly in intelligence sharing uh, in the in the context of terrorism. It's also important where you get your intelligence. I mean for example the French are extraordinarily good at their sources uh, and they have spent a lot of time in intelligence gathering through the oil industries. You want to know what's going on in the Middle East. Quite often you ask a Frenchman and whereas you might in somewhere else uh, ask, ask a German or even a Turk. Um, it also comes to something else and that is that where you're willing to act with what you've got, are you willing to give it out? Mm. Are you uh, on what are the conditions that you actually give that information about? Uh, just before Christmas, uh, there was a meeting in London, uh, and there were four guys from uh, French intelligence and two from the UK, and they went through the whole world. They took it sort of uh, threat by threat, and you come back eventually to Europe, and you see, for example, France would France would actually say, "Well, our, the main threat to us is in North Africa mm. because that's a colonial reminder, and we've got the Moroccan threat, and and, and the fact that people attack us, I'm our home-built uh, uh, terrorists, etc." United Kingdom gets their threat from somewhere else, but they combine. And they mm. combine when they're sort of sitting mm. around the 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 the, the, the uh, oil bars. Uh, sitting around with, with people that, that sometimes the official agencies don't okay. deal with because they don't want to be, be seen to be tying up with MI6 or, or Cité or whatever. Right. Christopher, stay with uh, Dr Paul Smith. Thank you very much for your time today. That's Thank Dr you, Paul Smith from the University of Nottingham there. Well, the head of Europol says IS militants are developing their own social media platform to avoid security crackdowns on their communications and propaganda. Rob Wainwright, who is head of the European Union's police, has also voiced his concerns about Brexit and says there must be careful negotiations when it comes to security. He's spoken to BFBS reporter Rosie Layden at the World Counter-Terror Congress in London. 
I think we've got to get this right. It's a really important part of the negotiations that are about to begin um, around the UK's um, uh, withdrawal from, from the European Union. Prime Minister Theresa May has made it very clear that security is one of her top priorities. I work in the, in, in the EU and I'm hearing the same from the side of, of those that are running the European Union institutions. So there's a general acceptance uh, that at this time of a heightened terrorist threat, for example, we need to have a closely integrated European security architecture and that the effects of the UK leaving the EU should not disturb that, at least not significantly. So we need to all work together to make sure that that, that happens. Uh, there's, there's a bit of work to do here. It's not so easy. There are some legal challenges to overcome. Politics of this need to be ironed out. But I'm rather hopeful that at the end, um, you know, the very strong security interests of everyone will make sure that, that we have a deal which will allow the UK to continue to be a major player in the security uh, framework of, of Europe specifically on, on European intelligence and police information exchange, how will that be affected during negotiations on Brexit? I'm hopeful that at Europol at least the UK will continue to be uh, associated with the organisation. We already have 20 other countries who are not EU members that are, are operating with us. They have their liaison officers at Europol, for example. So there is clearly a precedent legal mechanism for the UK to become at least an associated partner. I think the UK government will want to negotiate maybe an even better position than that, but that's not for, for me to, to comment on. There are other important police cooperation instruments in Europe, such as the use of the European arrest warrant, uh, where there isn't such an easy precedent for a non-EU member state to have access. So here, I think you know, some of the legal issues will have to be ironed out, and that will take some, some doing, but um, Let's see how the negotiations go on that front. And what can you tell me about the initiative announced yesterday where um, there was a 48-hour international blitz on online terror content? I, I believe 2,000 items were flagged up. Yes, as part of the growing work of the Internet Referral Unit that is embedded in, in, in Europol, and their job is to coordinate police community as a whole in Europe, and be the interface with the technology sector and especially the dozens of social media platforms such as the big ones like Facebook and Twitter uh, that Daesh is abusing right now by, by propagating its ugly propaganda uh, online with their videos and, and their other communications. In fact, we've identified 92 social media platforms that they're operating on. So this operation was a, was a concentrated crackdown um, in a number of countries, supported by the United States, in which, in sh very short order, we'd already identified 2,000 major accounts that were propagating this. Um, we were able to, to, to uh, remove those and understand better the, the architecture around it. We also saw the way in which Daesh is innovating the whole time. It's very resilient. We take one account down, it can organically reproduce it somewhere else as well. It's even developing its own a platform now on the internet to do that. So we're monitoring this very carefully. It means that Daesh's rather enterprising use of the internet has become a major part of the fight against terrorism today. That was the head of Europol, Rob Wainwright. Still to come, why Japan is joining US naval exercises in Asia and doctors at war, what life was really like for the medics at Camp Bastion Field Hospital.
Japan has sent her flagship helicopter carrier with a destroyer escort to take part in American naval exercises. It's the first time Japanese vessels have escorted US naval ships. After World War II, Japan was not allowed to have an offensive Navy, Army or Air Force. Well, let's talk now to former Royal Navy Rear Admiral Chris Parry. Good to speak to you today, Chris. Um, just to outline Japan's position then. Yes, as I think uh, you said, uh, as a result of World War II, um the Japanese self-defense force was limited to uh, defending the Japanese islands and very little else to tell you the truth. Uh, they had deployed some mine hunters before to support uh, international operations. They've done counter piracy, uh, but due to a recent change in the constitution, they're allowed to do two things. They're allowed to take part in the full range of military operations in coalition uh, with a partner. Uh, and secondly, they're allowed to export uh, defense equipment, something they weren't allowed to do uh, before. So how significant do you think it is that Japan is now taking part in these exercises as we're seeing? I think it serves two functions. Uh, one is obviously for the Japanese to extend their range, to train their people uh, and explore some of the things they haven't been able to do in the past. Uh, secondly, it sends out an image of solidarity with the United States uh, that Japan in its immediate region um, needs some sort of security guarantee. Uh, and as we've seen with a, an increasingly assertive China, the threat from North Korea, uh, that region's getting uh, pretty hot. So uh, I think the Japanese are trying to say, look, we have interests here. Uh, our biggest ally, in fact, uh, our treaty partner is the United States. We want to exercise with them, get used to operating with them just in case we need it. And what about the arming of these vessels? What have they got exactly? Well, they, um, uh, for a self-defence force, they're pretty potent. Um, whenever I look at uh, Japanese vessels, uh, I'm always amazed by the, uh, the word defence uh, force uh, in their title. Um, this uh, helicopter carrier, which is the big ship they've sent along, uh, is, a, is effectively the same size as our old Invincible class. And they can carry a range of uh, uh, helicopters, both uh, for troop transport, but also and more particularly for attack as well. So they can mount a very significant amphibious capability from that ship. And the destroyer that's with them is as good as the American destroyers that one sees uh, escorting American strike carriers around. I mean, the Japanese Navy is a formidable force. Uh, I mean, they, they were in the Second World War and uh, they will be again because their current level of capability is very high. Mm, Christopher Lee is listening to this with us as well. Um, Christopher, we understand that there's another exercise planned in July in the Bay of Bengal, another joint exercise. How far do you think the stepping up of military exercises is going to go with Japan? How more, much more active are they going to be with their security policy? The, <clears throat> there has been, during the past, I think it was about three weeks ago it started, um, there were what we would call select committee in, in Parliament discussions on how far you can actually take the Japanese military. This is in, in Japan itself. Um, the more exercises you do, the more people get used to the idea. Uh, and we're talking about very much the people because there is not a split, but there are two camps. There's a camp which is largely, uh, let's say, civilians, you say, just be careful. Do we actually want to go down that road? Because ultimately, somebody will ask the question, if the, the North Korean thing goes horribly wrong, could we be thinking about being a nuclear-armed country? Uh, and it, 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 there is background to this, and it is, the background is that not all the Japanese population 
has approved of American deployment in Japan. Okinawa is a perfect example. Mm. Uh, Chris Parry, uh, in terms of British involvement, I understand there is a planned uh, military exercise coming up soon involving Japanese Marines uh, with the British in Guam. Do you know much about that and how significant that would be? Well, I think uh, one thing we, we have to consider is that the uh, Japanese are building their amphibious capability very rapidly at the moment. Uh, I think everybody forgets that there are hundreds of islands around Japan, some of which uh, are under dispute uh, with Russia uh, and China. Uh, and what we're doing at the moment is is really providing advice, giving demonstrations and things like that about how amphibious warfare is conducted. Uh, I suspect we're going to see a ramping up of our relationship with Japan. And we shouldn't forget that the Japanese and ourselves were allied before the First World War and throughout the First World War, um, very constructively indeed. Um, and I think in future, once we get our aircraft carriers, you'll see them deploying out to uh, the Asia-Pacific region and conducting even more exercises with Japan. Uh, and potentially Japan needs to defend the sea routes that bring in uh, its raw materials. It needs to uh, defend against uh, non-state threats like piracy and criminality. Uh, but more importantly, it needs to demonstrate to emerging powers like China, uh, assertive powers like Russia and troublemakers like North Korea that they don't intend to be bossed around in their own neighbourhood. Rear Admiral Chris Parry, thank you very much for your time today. So, what was life really like for the medics based at Camp Bastion Hospital at the height of the war in Afghanistan? In 2011, Mark Duron spent six weeks there studying the daily lives of the medical staff and he's written a book about what he saw. He joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Mark. Did you go out to Camp Bastion aiming to write a book? Um, not really, no. I, um, I, I wasn't quite sure what I would find. I, I aimed to write a report for the Surgeon General, which I did. Um, but the idea of the book really came out of the doctors themselves, one in particular who is um, fairly high-ranking within the Ministry of Defence, who was keen that I, I write a book about the lived experience of the of the, of the surgeons. And the argument being that really only one book has ever been able to do justice to this, which is MASH, which is, as you know, written by a Korean War veteran um, and some years old now. Um, and, and that request, um, you know, um, um, it wasn't a single request, it was a repeated request. And... And I was asked to write that book without any fear of censorship whatsoever and just say it as it is because the world needed to know. And so I did. Um, so that's the story of the book. And is that when you actually started writing it, you set out, did you think you set out to achieve what you wanted to do? Um, for the book itself, which is different from some of the academic output, for the book itself, I was very keen to do what I was asked to do, which is to 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 describe as best as I could the lived experience of what it's like to be uh, a medic at war. Um, um, now, medics, as you know, are mostly not located on the front lines. They're sort of, sort of in, they're relocated. Um, um, but we know very little about the, the experience of medics um, in war zones. And so their lives are always so surreal that it's quite difficult for them, as indeed I suppose for many soldiers, to talk about their experiences back home. So I think part of the intention was, you know, on my part, and I think on the part of the, the one making the request, is to write a book that actually would let people back home know what life is, is really like in a war zone from a medical point of view. And was life at the hospital what you'd expected? Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. I um, I expected people to be very good at what they, what they did, and, and indeed they proved to be so. I think what surprised me 
is not that they were um, particularly good at what they did. When things get messy and they get very busy, they are stunningly good at coordinating. Some of the teamwork I saw in Cambastian is amongst the best I've ever seen anywhere. What surprised me, however, I think was the impact of boredom. So if days go by, um, you know, that aren't particularly busy, which should be good news, it leaves these uh, these medics with nothing particularly useful to do or nothing to feel productive about. And I, I hadn't expected quite what the impact could be on people that are particularly strong-willed, um, highly skilled, but left with nothing to do. Um, um, I, I think that really struck me as being being uh, a bit surprising, right? It's, the, it's, it's how corrosive uh, it can be to people. What did you understand or learn about the, the the mental setup of a military medic and their attitude compared to somebody, another troop who's in theatre in this way? Mm. I, I mean, a, medic... a combat troop on the front line, for example. Uh, it's a great question, right? So I think the medics don't don't um, don't take the sorts of risks that um, that uh, be, you know, combat troops on the front line would. Um, but what I get to see is, of course, the outfall of war, right? So the, the human cost of war is is put into very stark perspective because all the casualties or almost all the casualties from uh, from Helmand would go or many of them would go to, to Cambastian. So my first week there, we had 174 casualties come through. And the, the signature injury that summer was the in summer of 2011 was the high double amputee. And so people bleed out very heavily. And so what they get to see is, is, is I think, really what it is that war produces. Um, not only among soldiers, but also among civilians. Uh, and that's probably slightly different from what you might see in the front line. Mm. Mark, uh, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is listening to this interview and he's here in the studio with me. Um, I'll tell you what, Mark. Uh, MASH, a comedy for most people, how it was seen, yeah? Um, mm. No, the, the comedy, the TV shows, etc., did not produce a prognosis. No, not what happened next. What happened to the next? The people they saved. It wasn't about them. It was about the doctors. That's okay. Uh, the one I saw more of was in Northern Ireland and the work that uh, surgeons like Alan Cockcroft was doing, especially in uh, in brain surgery and the development of brain wounds, etc. Uh, you saw some of what was going to happen next. The big difference. Just want to see if you think so. The big difference with Bastion, for example was that the public image was less about the surgery, which is why you're writing this, but much more about after the trauma. And so you have uh, the, the people with, you know, with amputees, for example, still in the public eye, still in the public eye today. And that is the major difference between, um, between the other uh, um, experiences and, and what happened in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's fair enough. So um, I'm wondering whether there's a question attached to this. Yeah, the question about this is that where you have, and it's a cruel question really, where you see people have recovered, but you haven't actually seen the action that gotten to the state where they could be flown back, let's say, to the UK, there is a public definition which says, well, that's all right then because people can still walk around on one leg, etc., forgetting what happened to the other parts of injuries, the people that didn't recover, the work that happened to the doctors, what happened to the doctors, the effects on the doctors, etc. So you only still get a small part of, of, of what was going on in Afghanistan, which is this, exactly the same as MASH, uh, MASH all, all played for laughs and nobody knew what happened next, nobody knew how anybody walked out there with one leg or none at all, and the stuff that happened with Alan Cockcroft with the, with the, with the brain mm. injuries that followed. Mark, so, yeah. so, so the success of the medical side then covering up some of the horrors then? That's an interesting question, right? So I think it's true to say that people, or the medics nowadays can save people that wouldn't have been 
they wouldn't be able to save um, maybe even just a couple of years ago. But they can save them quite often because it's battlefield trauma uh, emergency treatment, isn't it? Right in the middle of a firefight. Mm. That's what gets them back to you, for example, or gets them back uh, to to the surgeon. No, that is correct. And quite often soldiers will realize that as soon as they hear the helicopter, um, they, you know, as, so long as they're still breathing, once they get on the helicopter, they'll know that they're chances on the way are... to Birmingham. Ma- Mark, um, just a, a final question. I mean, you were set up to do this book uh, without any censorship. Did it actually upset anybody? Was the MOD OK with what you wrote? Um, no, they weren't. So what um, didn't they like? Uh, well, you'd have to ask them, I think, right? So, so I, um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, the epilogue of the book describes very carefully um, the interactions with the Ministry of Defence. Um, when I finally did get a list of of specific concerns, many of them were uh, reputational concerns. Mm. Any yeah. other concerns, I tried very carefully to deal with in the book. You see, my biggest challenge was never the legal issue that might unfold with the MOD. My biggest challenge right. is always how to protect the people in the book. Um, Mark. And, there we must leave it, I'm afraid. Mark Durand, author of Doctors at War, Life and Death in a Field Hospital. It's out now. Thanks for listening. We'll be back the same time next week. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.